Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour called Life, Matthew DBS. Tonight, we'll be commemorating the 160th anniversary of the Civil War Battle of Gettysburg, one of the greatest battles in Civil War history. And to help me mark this anniversary is renowned and well-respected Civil War expert, Dr. Christian Keller. Christian Keller is a professor of history at U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, a post he has occupied since 2011. He is also the owner of Keller Enterprises, where he buys, sells, and trades military toys. He has also published five splendid works on the Civil War since 2004. Christian, welcome back to the show. Um, I'd like to start off by asking you, what was Lee, General Robert E. Lee's theater strategy, strategy when he invaded Pennsylvania? Well, what Lee wanted to do uh, by this point in the war was win a decisive victory north of the Mason-Dixon line on northern soil and so depress the northern will to fight that the northern people would ultimately throw Lincoln and the Republicans out of power. Uh, he wanted to influence, therefore, the political situation in the North using the military instrument, his army, uh, in a decisive victory over the Union Army of the Potomac, which was the primary uh, federal army in the East that he had been facing since he took command of the Army of Northern Virginia in June of 1862. So a decisive military victory to affect political will of the people to then uh, get a change in power uh, in Washington. Was there also additional motivations? Like, was he also trying to seek a, a, a forage for his army? You know, because by this time, you know, there, he was experiencing, you know, by the summer of six, 1863, he was experiencing shortages in food and forage for his men and also for his, uh, his horses. Well, that, that's absolutely correct, Matt. And uh, he had several objectives in this theater strategy, which you correctly noted. Uh, he wanted to uh, also, besides uh, have a decisive military win, which would affect uh, uh, the political situation in the North, he did indeed want to stay up in Pennsylvania as long as possible, uh, possibly overwintering there. Uh, at the very least, he wanted to be up there for several months and uh, plunder the Pennsylvania countryside of everything that was edible and thereby relieve Virginia farmers of the pressure that had been placed on them for the last two years of the war, and also relieve the Virginia Transportation Network, which was becoming very burdened, uh, particularly the railroads were getting harder and harder to repair, and it was quite necessary to uh, give them a break as well. So get the war out of Virginia. There will be all kinds of concomitant positive effects for the Confederacy while this also is creating political havoc for the Lincoln administration because even if he doesn't win a decisive victory in the North, but they, they can't get rid of him and he, and he stays up there, uh, it's going to create a real political headache for the Lincoln, for the Lincoln administration, and Lee knew that as well. So all of these, these goals are blended together. And as uh, some listeners may recall from my last uh, discussion on the Chancellorsville campaign, he and Jackson had planned this movement north back in the winter of 62 to 63 outside of Fredericksburg. And one of the goals that Jackson had in mind was to get to the uh, coal mines east of the Susquehanna River, where 75% of the Union's anthracite, or high-energy burning coal, 
was lo- was located. It was in several mines, essentially in Schuylkill County. And there is evidence that Lee may have still been uh, looking to get to those mines, recent evidence that's been uncovered in some of the Richmond newspapers. Uh, so if he had managed to stay in Pennsylvania for any length of time, I have no doubt he would have gone for the mines uh, somehow, but he would have needed to get across the river first. Okay, so basically he was hoping to at least force a crossing across the Susquehanna River then. That was basically the area where he was hoping to, you know, uh, basically locate his army then, correct? Well, he wanted to get Harrisburg, which is on the other side of the Susquehanna River from the Cumberland Valley, which was what he came up through, uh, into Pennsylvania. It's the uh, natural extension of the Shenandoah Valley northward. And uh, he had told Richard Ewell, one of his uh, new corps commanders, to uh, strike for Harrisburg. And uh, Ewell was indeed striking for Harrisburg. And one of his divisions got to the river, but the bridge was burned at Wrightsville, and they could not cross. Uh, so Harrisburg was definitely a... Um, an operational objective within the theater strategy, and that would have been a political blow to Lincoln just by itself, the fall of a Union state capital, uh, the destruction of the railroad hubs that existed there that would have unquestionably occurred, and it was something that Lee and Jackson had talked about. And then uh, I think after that, if there would have been uh, any possibility, uh, they would have tried to go go for the coal mines, as I indicated earlier. Okay, now let's switch to the Union side. As Lee as Lee begins his army of Northern Virginia begins its movement northwards up through the valley. Uh, you know, the Army of Potomac is following, and then about a week or so, about a week before the Battle of Gettysburg is launched, Joe Hook about maybe less than a week, Joe Union General Joe Hooker is fired by Lincoln. Why so close to the eve of battle? What led to Joe Hooker's firing? That's an excellent question, Matt, and it's kind of funny in some ways, not so funny in another. It uh, wasn't funny to, uh, to the, the Union Army at the time. So uh, Hooker had proposed to Abraham Lincoln as Lee's army is moving north, and he did uh, follow the Confederate Army, keeping between it and and Washington and Baltimore, the eastern cities, uh, which he was instructed to do, but he pushed Lincoln a little too hard with a proposal to strike south. While the Confederates were further west, they were in the Shenandoah Valley, he was between them and their capital, essentially, and so Hooker said, well, we could strike now for Richmond, we could finally get the Confederate capital, and Lincoln didn't like the idea because that would have then given Lee the possibility of immediately striking east to take Washington. So essentially trading Queens on the, on the chessboard. And uh, Hooker really got sacked over this. Uh, I think he, he had it coming to him eventually because yeah. he had uh, sold himself as the, the great savior of the Union and then blew it at Chancellorsville. And Lincoln was holding on to try to give him a chance. But finally, with this proposal, that was it, and decides to get rid of him. And then gives the command to George Gordon Meade three days before the battle at Gettysburg opens up. And as I tell my students, just imagine getting the most important job in your life three days before the most important part of that job is about to unfold. And, and that's what uh, George Meade got to face. Okay. Why George Gordon Meade? Why him? 
Well, he didn't want the job, first of all, as, as some listeners may know. Uh, we think the job may have been offered uh, to John F. Reynolds first, uh, Lancaster-born, Pennsylvanian. Uh, but Reynolds knew fully well what the fate of all previous Army of the Potomac commanders had been who had faced Robert E. Lee, and I don't think he wanted to have uh, that job in security, as it were. Uh, I think he also believed that uh, Meade was probably better for the job. Uh, and in that day and age, you could refuse Army command, you could refuse certain orders uh, from the Washington authorities and still live to tell the, tell the tale. Uh, that's unheard of today. but. Uh, Reynolds decided he didn't want it. We think uh, the evidence for that is is not incredibly strong, but there's enough to make us think this. And so Meade was the next logical choice, and Reynolds recommended Meade. And uh, there were some others who were asked about Meade's fitness within the Army of the Potomac High Command. And uh, they said, sure, we think Meade is probably the best qualified of all of us, uh, so let's give it to George Meade. And... Uh, uh, Meade's reputation was solid and solid and uh, uh, reliable, if not spectacular. Uh, he was different than Hooker. He was different than Burnside, uh, very different from uh, McClellan, though he was a Democrat uh, like McClellan was. And, and Lincoln said, well, what, do we, what have we got to lose? I mean, really, he's one of our last possible choices. They couldn't get Grant in yet. Uh, from the West, so Meade was really the logical choice. In fact, Robert E. Lee himself paid tribute to Meade by saying, if I recall the quote correctly, Meade will make no mistake on my front. Correct. And uh, Lee knew that he had a tougher general now uh, to deal with uh, than either Hooker or McClellan. Uh, Lee went down on record uh, at the time during the war. He was so sorry to see McClellan go. Uh, because, quote, uh, we understood each other so well, unquote. Uh, <laughs> Lee could get into his head and you know, figure out what he was going to do most of the time. Um, I think Chancellorsville, as we explained in, in my last uh, appearance on your show, uh, was really a close-run thing, and uh, Lee and Jackson did get, they got lucky there, but they also pushed and created their own luck. There's no question of that. Uh, but, but Hooker lost his nerve. Uh, and uh, I don't think Lee expected me to lose his his nerve or or uh, make too many mistakes at all. So Lee was going to have to f try to find a way to get some of his of his subordinates to make some mistakes to get Meade's subordinates to uh, you know make an error which he could then exploit, or perhaps maybe Washington would make a mistake and, and force Meade into something that he didn't want. Now, this is always something that's intrigued me. I've always been kind of curious about it. Before the battle began, 160 years ago today, Meade was constructing ex uh, defensive positions along a place called Pipes Creek, which I believe is very close to the Mason-Dixon line. What was he envisioning? Was he hoping that the, grand, the great battle would be held there, Meade? So Meade created the Pipe Creek line in northern Maryland, and the creek still exists. And there's actually a tour of it, uh, which uh, one can take, and uh, some markers have been put down. Uh, it was a pre-engineered and pre-mapped uh, out defensive line behind a very good uh, defendable creek. 
that went for some miles. It was not a small little little uh, stream. Yeah. Uh, in northern Maryland, it was going to be a fallback position in case things went wrong in Pennsylvania. Mm. Now, Meade, we think, and it depends which author you want to read, some authors claim that Meade wanted to fight at Pipes Creek, uh, and then uh, there are others that say it was it was simply a fallback position. I tend to believe that Meade, being a contingency planner, thinking about possibilities and probabilities, uh, which is what a good general does, I think he, he figured this was a fallback position if we need it, and it's a really good one. Mm. And he always had it in the back of his mind in case things went sour further north. Uh, and so he had this pre-engineered and worked out. Now, it was not all built up with earthworks and all of that, but uh, it would have been fairly easy for his army to have retreated back to that position, uh, depending on what would have happened further north. Uh, and uh, they would have been in a great position then to be uh, supplied uh, directly from Washington and Baltimore and also to protect the city. So it was it was very masterfully laid out and considered. Let's talk a little bit about Jeb Stewart and his very unfortunate cavalry ride that really uh, led to a lot of things going wrong for the Confederate forces when Gettysburg began. What was Jeb Stewart's objective when he detached from Lee and began his cavalry ride? Okay, this is a very interesting story, Matt. And uh, as I write in my book, The Great Partnership, uh, I believe that, that Stewart was suffering from uh, what we today might call a form of PTS or post-traumatic stress. Mm. Uh, so I will state that up front. I know some other authors who tend to agree with me on this uh, and others who do not. Uh, but uh, the facts indicate that uh, uh, Stewart had lost his chief of staff at Chancellorsville, with whom he was very close. He had lost his protege. Uh, at uh, Kelly's Ford in March, uh, a young man that, that he was grooming for higher command. Uh, he had lost uh, a, uh, uh, a child recently, uh, and then he lost his best friend, Stonewall Jackson, who uh, died on May 10th, 1863, uh, as a result of complications from his accidental shooting on May 2nd at Chancellorsville. Uh, then on top of that, he gets surprised at Brandy Station, as listeners may know, yeah. uh, the greatest cavalry battle in the in the uh, well in the Civil War and on the North American continent up to that point it was near uh, Culpeper, Virginia, uh, and he pulls out a tactical victory there. But uh, his ego had been tarnished, and the Richmond newspapers uh, wreaked havoc with his reputation. And for Stuart, who was really still quite a young man, this stung him. So you put that on top of all these these losses, I think he wanted to try to redeem himself, and he wanted to uh, prove to Lee that he was still all that in a bag of chips. Of course, Lee never doubted him um, and uh, didn't feel that uh, Brandy Station was any big uh, besmirchment of his reputation. Uh, but uh, Stuart decides to go around the Army, and he and, and Lee have an agreement that he will get back in time to the main Confederate infantry body before it crosses into Pennsylvania. Moreover, he's going to leave a portion of the cavalry behind, two brigades plus a little bit more to escort uh, Ewell and Hill and Longstreet as they move north with their infantry corps. Now, that wasn't enough uh, to screen the Army and to recon uh, the Federals, but Stuart 
figured and Lee believed him that he would get back in time with the best three cavalry brigades to continue to do the job that he had begun as the movement north uh, started in early June. So Stuart would have probably, if, if the Union cavalry hadn't done what it, what it did, uh, he may have gotten back in time to uh, actually be with the main Confederate infantry body well before Gettysburg opens up. But we have to give the Union cavalry credit for stopping him every time he tried to return to, uh, to Robert E. Lee's main body. Uh, and there are several skirmishes where Stuart is deflected in his attempt to get back. And he didn't help himself by taking those 100 wagons at Rockville, which weighs him down and holds him up. And that then gave the Union cavalry uh, an advantage because Stuart was moving slower with all these captured wagons. Yeah. Um, so there's the story with Stuart. I, I've long argued that his absence at the outset uh, uh, of the of the pencil once the the Confederate army is in Pennsylvania, it's a major detriment, uh, and uh, it definitely sets up the tactical situation at Gettysburg uh, the way that it does. I think you can't you can't even consider Gettysburg uh, in uh, the way that it does unfold historically. Uh, if Stuart is there in full force on on July first, let's say hypothetically his ta- he had altered his tactics and managed to keep himself, you know, place himself between Lee and you know the Army of Potomac, and he's with Lee effectively. Do you think actually the Battle of Gettysburg would have taken place there, or probably the great climactic battle would have happened elsewhere, since he, that Lee's not groping in the dark and forced to concentrate at Gettysburg? How what it, how do you contemplate that what if scenario? That's a great question, uh, and I run this with my students all the time. I've thought about it for about the last 40 years, and my unequivocal answer is the battle doesn't happen at Gettysburg, not the big one. There might have been a skirmish there. Uh, I think it's it's quite possible uh, because Gettysburg was a road network and it was the uh, county seat of Adams County, something was likely to happen there. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it would have been a smaller engagement, probably between Stuart and Buford or Stuart and some other Union Cavalry detachment. Yeah. Uh, and or uh, if uh, the Union had decided to make a stand with some infantry there, uh, it would have been uh, a very lopsided affair on the first day. And it would have been a one-day battle, if at all, if it had happened there at all. I think that the main clash would have happened further east and or south. I think that, uh, as we just discussed with George Meade, if he realizes he can't find a good defensive position in Pennsylvania, he would have uh, fallen back to his Pipe Creek line. And we know from his directives to his various corps commanders, they were all aware of the Pipe Creek line, and they were all aware that Meade... Uh, had that ready to go if necessary, and he was really playing the contingency game George Meade was. So if Stuart is with Lee on July 1st or at the end of June, uh, it changes the whole character of of the campaign. And uh, the further back you go with, say, Stuart uh, 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 escorting, Ewell, uh, as uh, as uh, his corps rampages through the, the southern tier counties of Pennsylvania, the the more the campaign alters. So uh, if you have Stuart uh, coming in, say, uh, returning to, to Ewell by, say, uh, June 20th, uh, it's a totally different campaign. And at that point, it's speculation. Okay, let's talk about day one. How, how did it initially unfolded, and which Confederate, specific Confederate Union units were engaged on the first day? 
on on day one, uh, it is primarily the the Union uh, Corps of the first and the eleventh uh, that arrive on the field to face the uh, Confederate Corps of Richard Ewell and um, and A. P. Hill. So it's the second and the third. Confederate Corps. Now, it may sound to some listeners that that seems like an even fight, but remember, Confederate Corps are about 25,000 infantry strong, and the Union Corps are running anywhere from 13 to 16,000. So uh, it's it's about a three to two numerical advantage for the Confederates on the first day at Gettysburg. Uh, Even if you throw Buford's cavalry in the mix, about 2,500 troopers, it's still uh, very much a numerical advantage for the Southerners, which is unusual in the Civil War. And uh, uh, those are the corps that are involved. And uh, this this battle opens up with uh, Buford uh, anticipating that A.P. Hill, uh, followed at length by Longstreet, who isn't going to get involved on the first day, uh, that those two Confederate corps coming across the South Mountain from the Chambersburg Greencastle area on their way to Gettysburg to uh, uh, rendezvous with Richard Ewell in the Cashtown, Gettysburg area. And Lee had sent out an order at the end of June. He wanted to concentrate the Army. He had found out through Longstreet's spy, Harrison, uh, because Stuart wasn't there to give him this information yet, Mm. uh, that the Union Army was moving more rapidly and in greater numbers and was closer than he had thought. So he wanted to concentrate his far-flung Army throughout south-central Pennsylvania into a, uh, a, a single area of, of location, and he chose the Gettysburg area for that uh, because of the road network. And so we have Hill leading the way uh, from uh, uh, the Cumberland Valley, coming down the Chambersburg Pike. Buford knew he was coming and had scouted him out the, the day before, and he knew exactly how he was going to come. And he and Reynolds had been in uh, consultation, and John F. Reynolds, in charge of the Union First Corps, who was the closest Union Corps to the Gettysburg area, uh, Buford and Reynolds sent a lot of correspondence back and forth in uh, the the day, on the last day of June, June 30th, 1863, uh, talking about how Buford is to buy time with his outnumbered cavalry division and hold up Hill as much as he can until the Union First Corps arrives. Everybody knew in the Union, on, on the Union side, that Richard Ewell was going to come in eventually, and probably from the North and from the East, which is exactly what happened. But the idea was they would get more Union Corps up there to be able to stall and hold off Ewell. And if they could fight the battle uh, in the Gettysburg area, they were willing to do it. Reynolds was given some authority by George Meade to do this, uh, but Meade still held the final card. So Meade was going to make the final call, but he was giving his wing commander uh, and his, his, his colleague, he, he and, uh, and Reynolds got along well, yep. uh, enough decision-making power to set up the first day. And uh, Buford does vision the ground, and he uses the ridge lines very effectively in holding up the uh, oncoming brigades of, um, of uh, A.P. Hill long enough for the Union First Corps to arrive. And uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a pretty close-run thing for a while uh, to the west of, uh, of the town of Gettysburg on the morning and early afternoon of July 1st. Now, who led the Confederate assault that turned the Union right flank on day one? 
that's going to be uh, Richard Yule's Corps and specifically Jubal Early's division. So things went pretty well for the Union uh, to the west of town in the fight between the 1st Corps and the leading divisions uh, of uh, A.P. Hill's Corps, particularly Harry Heath's division. Uh, bungled Confederate assaults, lack of coordination, uh, very expert use of the ridge lines by Buford and Reynolds. Uh, Buford's men had uh, uh, a breech-loading carbines. They had a little tech advantage there that helped them. Uh, help equalize the numbers a little bit. But then you just simply have the weight of numbers coming in from the north with, with Ewell's uh, two divisions. Uh, well, there are three coming, but only two are going to get engaged. And the 11th Corps will get to the uh, to the uh, plains of Gettysburg north of the town of Gettysburg. They will get there in time to hook in to the extreme northern flank of the Union First Corps, but they are stretched to the limit. Uh, and their commander, Oliver Otis Howard, had left a, uh, a, a division, essentially one-third of his corps, on Cemetery Hill as a reserve. That was a prudent move for which he later gets the thanks of Congress, but it meant that he was going in with a two-thirds strength corps to fight Richard Ewell. And uh, then one of his subordinates, Billy Barlow, stretches the line even further by extending it up to Barlow's Knoll. Early outflanks Barlow's Knoll, outflanks Barlow, and then it's, it's a domino effect where the Union brigades of the 11th Corps uh, get uh, knocked down one after the other by being hit in the front and the flank by Early and by Rhodes, uh, the other division that uh, Ewell gets engaged uh, on the first day. And uh, the 11th Corps is ultimately forced uh, forced to retreat in a rather hasty manner back through the town of Gettysburg uh, about the same time as the Union 1st Corps is finally defeated uh, on Seminary Ridge by a concerted assault uh, that uh, uh, is finally put together uh, under under A.P. Hill. Now, the credit, though, and I always say this when I'm leading my staff rides at Gettysburg, needs to go to Robert E. Lee, who realizes at a certain point in the early to mid-afternoon of July 1st, that he has four full divisions. Now, some of them have been a little cut up, but he's got four full divisions that he can fling at these two Union Corps, and he can catch them in a vice. And he knows he's got numerical advantage, and he makes the call, and he tells them to all advance, more or less simultaneously, uh, by the mid-afternoon, and they will succeed in pushing the 1st and the 11th Corps back. But these Union Corps had succeeded in what Buford and Reynolds had envisioned, which was buying time for the rest of the Union Army to get there, to get to Gettysburg and make the decision, are we going to actually fight here? Are we going to fight here, or are we going to retreat? And this hard fighting on, on the first day, though, it results in a Confederate victory and a Union defeat, tactically. Uh, it buys the time that George Meade needs to come up to Gettysburg personally, make the call, make the decision. Yes, it's good enough ground. We're going to stand and fight here. We're not going to retreat. Uh, and, uh, of course, that would give Lee the victory. That would give him at least a partial victory. And uh, Meade uh, is going to take, then, the really good high ground, which is south of the town of Gettysburg. And, uh, well, we can continue that with some more questions. That, that's the great what if. There was that moment, you know, um, okay, they've taken the town. They're now advancing to Cemetery Hill. Lee gives that famous order to Yule, 
take the hill if possible, and Yule hesitates. The hinge of fate. Let how was what was it possible to take Cemetery Hill based on your own personal assessment? Was it possible they could have the Confederates could have invested and occupied Cemetery Hill, or would they have been repulsed? What what is your interpretation of that that crucial moment on day one? Well, Matt, that's uh, the $64,000 question, isn't it? Uh, and it's one of the great questions that we always debate and always talk about in regards to Gettysburg. And uh, I take my students up there every time, uh, any group I take to Gettysburg, we go up to East Cemetery Hill and we ask this very question. I have them role play Richard Yule. So there's a couple things that we need to know. Uh, I, I do think that if Yule had attacked, to answer your question directly, greater likelihood than not that he would have taken it, even with his two bloody divisions. So I, I do think that it's it's very likely that uh, the uh, the hill would have fallen. It would have been a hard-fought thing, uh, and you would have seen those two Confederate divisions that were already bloodied, beating up the 11th Corps, bloodied some more. Mm. And remember, they're thirsty and they're tired, but their blood was up, and they probably would have gone. Uh, and, uh, you know, the question is how badly mauled would they have been in taking the hills? Would they have been able to hold them? Uh, how would Lee have been able to reinforce them uh, for whatever Meade may have done the next day? Now, most of the time, uh, I have wargamed this several times, most of the time the Union Army just quits the field if, if Cemetery Hill uh, falls. Uh, I think that George Meade, not knowing enough at this point in the battle, not being yet personally at Gettysburg, he's still with the main body of the Union Army coming north out of Maryland, I think uh, if word had come that the 1st and the 11th Corps remnants had been pushed off of a cemetery home, were streaming down the Baltimore Pike and the Tawny Town Road, I think he would have said, okay, everyone back to Pike Creek. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so I think then Lee would have gotten an operational-level victory at Gettysburg. He would have effectively destroyed two Union Corps, which was something that he wanted to do, bite off these Union Corps that came north to meet him one at a time. Yeah. That's what he supposedly told Isaac Trimble. Um and it would have been a, a very important victory for Lee. Then the question would have been what to do after that. Would mm -hmm. Lee have followed uh, the retreating Meade back towards Pipe Creek, or would he have stayed in Pennsylvania uh, and done what he wanted to do with his original theater strategy? I tend to think the latter, and I think Meade would have been forced to come forth and engage him eventually. Uh, but he would have likely been reinforced from Washington, so uh, some of those losses would have probably been made good. Um, so that's what I think about the, the whole uh, attack on Cemetery Hill, what if. Uh, there's no guarantee it would have succeeded. There's no guarantee if Jackson had lived and had been at Gettysburg that he would have succeeded, but I'm sure we'll address that in another uh, instance. I, I don't think if Jackson lives, as I said in our last uh, interview, uh, the fight is at Gettysburg at all. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I do think that uh, uh, Ewell, he hesitated for reasons that were reasonable to him at the time. And if Lee really wanted him, really, really absolutely wanted him to take the hills, then he would have commanded him and ordered him to do so unequivocally, and he did not. And uh, there were a lot of things Ewell didn't know uh, about the strength of what was up there on Cemetery Hill. He thought it was just the 1st and the 11th Corps remnants, but he knew the 3rd Corps was getting close, the 3rd Union Corps. 
uh, and uh, uh, the second corps wasn't too far away. And what if they came up and hit him in the flank as he was attempting to take uh, that hill or, or Culp's Hill? Uh, and uh, uh, what about his own reserve division, Allegheny Johnson's? It was at Biglerville. It was a little too far away to get engaged. It made him a little nervous, and uh, uh, was it going to be able to get to the field in time if things went south, if things went badly? Um, and Yule asked for help from Hill, and Hill said no, uh, which certainly didn't help his confidence. Now, so we could go on and on about yeah. all these contingencies. Let's get to day two now. What was Lee's, okay, what were his tactics for day two? What was he trying to do with his core? Uh, Lee, Lee developed uh, what I call a war-winning battle plan tactically for the second day. Uh, its essence was very, very sweeping, um, and it could well have worked at a couple things gone better for him. Uh, but uh, as I'm going to explain, George Meade had his best day of the war on, on, on the second day at Gettysburg in, in so much as his leadership and command is, is uh, concerned. So Lee's battle plan for the second was, was deceptively simple. It was essentially hit the Union Army on its two flanks that had developed over the night. The famous Fishhook line yeah. had developed most of its form over the night of the first into the morning of the second. You have the Union 12th Corps on, on Culp's Hill. You have the remnants of the first and the 11th on Cemetery Hill. You have the second Union Corps uh, under Hancock now occupying Upper Cemetery Ridge. And then you had the third Union Corps under Dan Sickles uh, occupying Lower Cemetery Ridge, extending down towards Little Round Top, but it did not occupy it. And Lee's plan, uh, the 5th and the 6th Corps are not yet on the field. The 5th Corps is very close. The 6th Corps is still about 15, 20 miles away. Lee's plan was, was uh, to uh, have Yule demonstrate uh, very strongly on the two hills in the north and keep Lee focused, uh, keep Meade focused there and occupied, and that was to be developed into a full-scale assault if Yule found it practicable. There's that if practicable word again. Mm. And meanwhile, while uh, Meade is being diverted to the north, James Longstreet, who has now come on the field and uh, did not want to fight at Gettysburg, as uh, some listeners may know, and had asked Lee to disengage on the evening of the 1st and go around the Union Army operationally. Lee says, no, we've defeated them on the first day. We'll finish them on the second. Uh, Longstreet was given command for the grand assault in the south uh, with his two divisions of McClaws and Hood, and uh, they were to hit Sickles at the diagonal or the oblique, which was a Frederick the Great type maneuver, not quite at the perpendicular, not, not hit him right on the flank, but at, on the oblique. And uh, then Richard Anderson, which was uh, the uh, commander of the, the 3rd Division of Hill's Corps, was to go more or less straight across the uh, lower part of the uh, the field separating seminary and cemetery ridges and then hit the union um, the union defenses from the front as hood and McClaws are hitting them from the oblique so three large confederate divisions unbloodied uh, were to hit the, the southern flank of the union army now this was all based on intel that was uh, conducted about 6 o'clock in the morning by Lee's chief engineer, a guy named Captain Johnson. 
Johnson came back, and the historians argue about this. What did he tell Lee, and what was correct and what wasn't in his report? Uh, Johnson, after the war, swore he gave Lee correct information. I've actually read some of his original letters, held them in my hands. Johnson said that Little Round Top was unoccupied, Devil's Den was unoccupied, uh, that Sickles was uh, actually uh, further out. He was not uh, tucked in on Cemetery Ridge. He was actually further out, close to the Emmitsburg Road Ridge, or the Emmitsburg Road, okay, which runs right down the middle of the, of the third day's field. And uh, therefore, Lee thought, well, I'm going to really be able to roll up the Union Army like I did at Chancellorsville, uh, this time with even more men, and uh, I'm going to be able to really smash them. And uh, this is going to force Meade into retreat. I may even be able to destroy the Union Army here. That's why I say it was a war-winning battle plan, potentially. But it was based on, 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 on erroneous information, as it turned out. Uh, because uh, we know that there was no Union Corps at the Emmitsburg Road that early in the morning. And we also know that Sickles is going to move his Third Corps out in the uh, early afternoon to uh, the Emmitsburg Road Ridge, which peaks at the uh, Peach Orchard there. It's kind of where the apex of the V of his line, of his new line, will be located. And this movement completely screws up Robert E. Lee's battle plan because now you have federal soldiers in large numbers where and when they should not be. And this really sets up the, the difficulties that uh, Lee and Longstreet are going to have on the second day. Uh, Sickles' rogue movement, it was not authorized by George Meade. Meade was furious with Sickles about it. He knew that it made Sickles' corps exposed. Uh, that it potentially uh, endangered the entire stability of the Union battle line. Uh, but uh, by the time uh, Meade gets down there to reprimand Sickles and to order him to, to return, uh, the Confederates are about to launch their attack. This was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon on the 2nd. Well, did it have to be so late in the day, or was it the, 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 the nature of the terrain? It took Longstreet that long to get his divisions into place, I mean, and also Sickles' movement. Is that the reason why it was so late at 4 p.m.? Well, this was not the plan. Lee wanted uh, Longstreet to move earlier, and we know this, and he had to actually push him. He went down and uh, personally prodded him at least once, maybe twice, uh, and uh, uh, Longstreet has been pilloried by some historians over the years for being sulky, uh, sullen, uh, pouting that his proposal to disengage and go around the Union Army operationally had been rejected now twice by Robert E. Lee. Uh, and uh, I, I don't buy that Longstreet is purposefully uh, being slow in enacting Lee's orders here. Okay. Longstreet was methodical. It took Longstreet time to get things done, but when he did it, they were, it was very powerful. Just look at his attack at Second Manassas. Yeah. Look at his attack later on at, in the wilderness. Yeah. He was slower. He was more methodical, uh, but he would when he attacked, it was like a hammer stroke. Uh, Jackson was much, much faster in getting an attack going and moving faster, but sometimes his attacks would run out of steam, uh, which is kind of what happened at Chancellorsville. Uh, the Confederates do have a propensity to launch their attacks late in the day, and you will see this in, in one battle after the other in yeah. both Eastern and the Western theaters. I think a lot of that, Matt, has to do with how hard it was 
contextually to get large masses of men into position for a jump off a point for an attack, yeah. particularly an attack of this size, uh, and uh, uh, to make sure the artillery is there for the preparatory bombardment. Uh, and Longstreet, we know, was not happy because one of his, his, his best brigades, Evander Law's brigade, which was part of Hood's division, uh, was uh, the last to arrive and uh, in Hood's uh, in Hood's contingent. And Law had some of the best fighting men in all of Longstreet's uh, corps, and he didn't want to go in without them. So he kind of held up his movement uh, down to Pitzer's Woods, where the, the jump-off point was for this assault, uh, to uh, make sure Law was close by, or at least close enough that he could catch up. Then the delay caused by him supposedly being seen by Union spotters on Little Round Top. And uh, some listeners may be aware of this. Uh, Longstreet was on his way south, and he probably would have gotten there, I would say, probably about 2 o'clock, uh, maybe 1.30. Uh, but he is forced to double back to supposedly fool Union observers whom he thought saw his movement south through a gap in the ridge line in Seminary Ridge. He's moving behind Seminary Ridge to his jump-off point. And that bought, uh, that, that, well, bought the Union a lot of time, and it, it lost the Confederates an immense amount of time. And I've talked to several park rangers and colleagues about this. Most of us think that Sickles' movement out to this exposed position on the Emmitsburg Road Ridge that I just mentioned happens while these precious minutes are ticking by that Longstreet uses in the doubling back. So in other words, if Longstreet had actually not doubled back and had attacked uh, earlier in the afternoon, which would have happened if he hadn't supposedly been seen and then made the wrong decision about that, uh, well, he might have, he, he may have hit Sickles in his original position, and or he might have hit Sickles as he was moving out which would have been even more disastrous. Uh, so time and timing made a big difference in how things went at Gettysburg on the second day. And the decision of, of a corps commander to uh, double back on the march because he, he thought that he'd lost the element of surprise. It's interesting how things hinge on one person's decision. How devastating, when Longstreet finally launched, how devastating, how effective was his initial assault? How, how good was it? It was very good. Uh, it was, uh, as Longstreet himself put it later on, some of the best fighting of uh, any of the infantry of the Army in Northern Virginia at any point in the war. I do agree with his assessment on that. Uh, and uh, uh, more Union casualties are inflicted by the attacking Confederates, then they are able to inflict on the Confederates as defenders, which is opposite to conventional wisdom, considering the technology, which was available to these soldiers at the time, favoring the defenses, as many people may remember. Uh, the ferocity and the, the power of the Confederate attacks, deflected as they were by Sickles' position, uh, which forced McClaws to hit uh, one of Sickles' divisions, and then Hood to essentially hit the other. They, they couldn't go together in one hammer blow. They had to deflect themselves and wrap around Sickles' V-like formation, his salient. That deflected their power, but nonetheless, they still just about demolished the Third Corps. The Third Corps is so badly mauled that it's amalgamated out of existence uh, yeah. after Gettysburg. Yeah. Sickles himself loses his leg. 
uh, which then uh, starts that whole fun story about uh, how he sends his amputated leg to, to Washington to demonstrate to his his political colleagues what, what fighting politicians will sacrifice for their country. Uh, one of the great stories of Gettysburg, of course. Um, and then he gets to the hospitals and gets to the, the to talk to the reporters before anybody else. So it's his story of Gettysburg that gets into the Union papers before George Meade, which infuriated his boss. Uh, all kinds of interesting subplots and sub-stories there. But to answer your question directly, it was a devastating attack. Uh, and it makes you wonder if Sickles hadn't made his move, how bad it really would have been then for the Federals. Uh, because of Sickles' stumbling block, which he himself did not hesitate to uh, tout to the Union press, to the federal press in his bed down in Washington. Uh, if it weren't for his, his, his ill-conceived rogue movement, interestingly, it's quite possible that the Confederate assault would have been far worse on the, on the Union position than it actually was. But part of the reason that it isn't more successful is because of what George Meade does. And I said earlier, this is George Meade's best day in the war, and I really do argue that strongly because Meade, you have to make two choices here. Uh, He had had a choice, uh, two decisions uh, that that he could have made. One was to let Sickles rot and suffer his own fate, which would have meant the destruction of Sickles' Corps, no question, and the endangerment of the rest of the Union Army's line or to support the rogue subordinate. And he made the right call with the latter. And he, delegating to Hancock to help him, sends every possible battery, every last regiment and half regiment and a brigade that he can scrape from the 2nd Corps and the 5th Corps, which is now on the field, and even the 12th Corps, uh, to, to come down to that sector of the field and shore up Sickles' flagging line. It's magnificent generalship on the part of the Union High Command at this time. Uh, They really needed to perform well in this crisis situation, and they did. Uh, And it's it's unlike any other fighting that the Union Army does at any other point in the war, save perhaps the Appomattox campaign. It's just remarkable. I mean, that's where Governor Warren, that was his greatest moment as a Civil War general, you know, uh, helping orchestrate the defense of the Round Tops. Absolutely. And, you know, Warren really does not have a very distinguished uh, uh, command and and, uh, command history after Gettysburg. He's, of course, promoted to Corps Command because of what he does at Gettysburg, which is foreseeing the danger to the now decisive point of Little Round Top, which otherwise would have been bypassed by the Confederate assault, but now it's important because of what Sickles did in his movement out there. Well, uh, the Confederate assault is deflected now towards Little Round Top, and if they get that that hill, they will actually outflank the new position of the Union Army and threaten uh, Meade's supply lines back to Washington. Uh, and uh, Warren sees it coming, and you got to hand it to him. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, like Meade and, and like Hancock, he has a good day. And uh, he very quickly... Uh, makes the decision that I've got to get an infantry brigade up here. He's an engineer officer. He's a chief engineer in uh, the Army of the Potomac. And to his credit, the uh, brigade commander, Strong Vincent, to whom uh, Warren goes ultimately through a chain of command and says, we need help. We have got to get men up here. Strong Vincent could have said no. 
uh, I'm not listening to this engineer. He's not in my chain of command, but he realizes that uh, the chips are down, and he obeys. And that's how the 20th Maine and the rest of Vincent's brigade gets the little round top, literally minutes before the Confederates assaulted. Yeah. Uh, it was, again, a time, a closely timed situation where time and timing made a great difference. The second day is filled with examples of this. Uh, 15 minutes later, 10 minutes later, would have been too late for the Federals, and uh, the Confederates would have overrun Little Round Top. Now, the 20th Maine, of course, was magnificently immortalized by Ken Burns' Civil War documentary, and of course, the movie Killer Angels. But I remember looking at a, I think it was the 150th anniversary of Gettysburg. I remember like a C-SPAN thing. They were actually talking to a park ranger. Okay, what about what regiment was on the extreme right flank of the Union Army? And I think I got the impression that regiment was at the 71st Pennsylvania, just like the 20th Maine. They had a royal battle royal, you know, a struggle, a life and death struggle. I mean, is that true? Well, it was actually the 61st Pennsylvania, uh -huh. the okay. extreme uh, right flank of the uh, of the Union Army in the Culps Hill area. Uh, they were actually a little south of Culps Hill, uh, and uh, they themselves didn't have the worst possible fight, but their uh, the fight for Culp's Hill, which was more or less the parallel to the fight for Little Round Top, also did get very hot on July 2nd, yeah. uh, because Yule does decide to develop the demonstration, as Lee had called it, into a full-scale assault. He does see the opportunity. He now has his third division up, and uh, that third division, uh, Allegheny Johnson, who had fought under Jackson, fights extremely well, and they actually... Uh, managed to uh, temporarily outflank some of the Culp's Hill defensive positions. They actually take some of the lower entrenchments that the Union soldiers had dug on Culp's Hill, and uh, there's a heroic defense uh, by General Green's uh, brigade. Uh, uh, actually, I think he was a division, General Green's division on Culp's Hill, uh, Green had done very well at Antietam also, interestingly. Papa Green, as he was called, uh, and uh, the 12th Corps had been stripped bare from uh, Culp's Hill to go down and deal with the problems in the South. At this, you know, Meade is sending all these troops, as I said, from anywhere he can get them. And by the numbers, Green should have been overwhelmed. But uh, again, superb Union generalship and foresight. He had his men really dig strong, hard emplacements and entrenchments, and the Confederates just couldn't dislodge him. So. Uh, you know, Green is kind of like the Culp's Hill equivalent, though, of a higher rank uh, to uh, Chamberlain and to the defenders of Little Round Top and Vincent's Brigade. Uh, and I, I would like to say that that uh, we need to remember the rest of Vincent's Brigade. Uh, it, it, it was not just the 20th Maine that saves Little Round Top. Yeah. The movie makes it look like it's all Chamberlain. Uh, no, I mean the, the 83rd Pennsylvania was there, the 44th New York. Yep. Uh, they, there were other regiments that came in later, uh, and really hold. Uh, Hazlitt's battery was up there, um, and fight like devils to to retain this ground. Now they had the terrain advantage. There's no question. This was very hard terrain for the Confederates to uh, navigate as they're trying to go up uh, the steep slope, but. Um, Time and timing was in the Federals' favor. Also, very, very strong leadership and uh, sacrifice. My One of my favorite moments is that night, you know, 
that Meade has that grand council, a council of war at his headquarters, and then he predicts that General Gibbon, as the meeting adjourns, he predicts that General Gibbon, Lee's assault on the following day will be coming at him. What led Meade to make that prediction? How do you interpret that? Wow, yeah, that's a, a really important question, actually, for us to understand how the third day, third day goes. It's often erroneously stated that Meade was the first Union general to get into Robert E. Lee's head and to predict that that Lee was going to hit the center the next day because uh, he had hit him on the flanks the day before. Meade is a careful, methodical thinker, as I said before. He is an engineer officer. Uh, he is a contingency planner. You know, Exhibit A is the Pipe Creek line that we've discussed. He thought through all the possible contingencies. Yeah. Maybe we're going to get hit in the South. Well, he's got the Sixth Corps very well positioned to take care of a renewal of the, of the Confederate assault in the South, which was initially Lee's plan for the third, by the way. Uh, he also got the 12th Corps re-strengthened up on Culp's Hill, and he agreed uh, and, and, uh, and, and ordered Henry Slocum, commander of the Union 12th Corps, to retake those lost trenches on the morning of the 3rd. So he is, is thinking contingently about his position in the North. He knows Cemetery Hill is very secure. It had fought off a Confederate assault on the night of the 2nd. Uh, so he's pretty certain called, uh, Cemetery Hill's good. So he's also then thinking about his center. And Gibbon held uh, the uh, most likely point of attack if the center is going to be uh, hit. He was a brigade commander under Hancock. And uh, he tells uh, uh, Gibbon, um, you know, if, if this is coming, it's going to probably hit you. But it wasn't because he had absolutely predicted for certain that the attack is going to hit Gibbon. So what he did is he tells Gibbon, it might come to you, be prepared, yeah. which is good foresight. But he also plays contingently by posting reserves on the reserve on the reverse slope of, of Cemetery Ridge in that center sector and having uh, the rest of the uh, of uh, Cemetery Ridge line very well uh, reinforced with uh, with with uh, reserve batteries and also with uh, any reserve regiments that he could find so he's thinking about every possibility where Lee could possibly go uh, and so when Lee does go for the center, uh, which was his revised battle plan for the third, Meade is ready for it. But it's not because he totally predicted that this was where the assault was going to go. It was one choice of many. And indeed, Meade even did uh, have a contingency in case the Confederates break through. Uh, Alan Gelzo makes an argument, and I think it, it, it is not as, as supported as some might, might like, and it, you know, the, the evidence isn't 100% there, but uh, that uh, Meade had a, a, um, an emergency headquarters spot already located on the Baltimore Pike uh, to direct the retreat if necessary. Uh, if that's true, all that says is we really do have the example of a general here who's trying to think a couple steps ahead on the chessboard, and that's a really good thing. How did Lee want to use Pickett and Stewart for, during the third day's battle attack? So Lee's plan for the third, and this may come as a surprise to some listeners, was not at all a foregone conclusion to defeat. It was not suicidal. 
Uh, it was a complicated plan, and we all know that complicated plans are more likely to fail than simple plans, but Lee had no choice but to make it a complicated plan. Stuart was to go around the northern flank of the Union Army, around the hills, and either be in a position to strike and pursue a la, uh, Napoleon and his tactics, the fleeing Union Army as it fled down the roads to Washington and Maryland uh, after Pickett's men break through in the center, or it was to actually strike the reverse of Cemetery Ridge as Pickett's men are hitting it in the front or sometime around the same time. We don't know which, the records are lost. Uh, and uh, those who have written on Stuart uh, speculate on this and know more than I do about it. But uh, Stuart was to, was to play a role. He finally comes in on the night of the second, belatedly, uh, brings the 100 wagons, which slowed him down, and they did not impress Lee very much. Lee now knows, though, he's got all the Confederate cavalry united. He has now an advantage, and he can use them, and he does build them into the plan, which I think was wise. It's a very powerful striking force, potentially if used well. Uh, Pickett was not just to march across the field and die. Uh, he was to be preceded, of course, by this great artillery bombardment, which does occur. Another part of the uh, of the of the plan uh, that had four great moving parts. And uh, if the bombardment did its job. Pickett was to get across essentially unscathed, and that was what Lee expected to happen. Now, Longstreet was more cynical and skeptical. He didn't think it was going to happen as well uh, as, as Lee did, as, as smoothly. Uh, but Lee had every reason to think that his artillery would do enough damage to the cemetery ridge line that the bulk of Pickett's division and the other uh, Confederate uh, divisions that were engaged under Pettigrew and Trimble uh, that they would get across more or less unscathed, too. Yes, there'd be some damage by uh, Union artillery fire, but, you know, 12,500 to 13,000 Confederates uh, hitting the center of the Union line, if that had actually occurred, it would have broken the Union line, regardless of Meade's careful contingency planning. And the reason it didn't happen was because the artillery bombardment failed. And I really, you know, having studied this this campaign in this battle for 40 years, I'm convinced that if the artillery bombardment had been even somewhat more successful, you would have had more Confederates make it uh, up to the stone wall, up to the angle there where the, the, the climax of Pickett's charge happens, and even 1,500 more might have made a difference. Uh, because as Napoleon says, the, the moral is to the physical is three is to one in war. The momentum was with the Confederates. Uh, and if they had had a couple thousand more men at that particular moment of contact, who knows what could have happened. It still may not have done the trick, but it may well have. Uh, and Lee did plan for that. But as some listeners may know, the Confederate artillery fuses were uh, generally faulty that were fired that day in the bombardment. And a lot of them missed. Uh, they did not suppress the Union artillery as planned. They didn't do enough damage with the defending infantry. Lee knew fully well that they had to be suppressed. They had to be uh, damaged if his men were going to make the charge successfully. Well, it didn't happen. And there was so much black smoke on the, on the field that uh, when the decision is made to actually send Pickett forward, nobody knows that the Union artillery has not been adequately suppressed and the infantry not damaged enough. Uh, and uh, they're not going to really know 
fact we're at least perspective a mile away uh, that the charges failed until the, the first stragglers and the first uh, uh, remnants of, of the failed charge start coming back across the field. It, it, you know, for a while, for most of the charge, Lee thinks that, that it's succeeding. Um, Ewan was the fourth part of the plan. Uh, he was to demonstrate again on the hills in the north, but he was preempted by this early morning assault uh, that I had just mentioned here, uh, led by Henry Slocum of the 12th Corps. So he kind of shot his bolt well before Pickett's Charge uh, begins about midday, as when the bombardment began. Uh, and uh, so he's not going to be able to distract Meade very much at all. So Meade will be able to focus totally on his center. Uh, well, I, uh, I remember reading once, actually, when the Confederates did their bombardment, actually, it was a lot safer to be the extreme front of the line than to be in the Union rear echelon. Actually, they were fleeing forward instead of going backward with the bombardment and all Correct. that. Yeah. Ah, and that was, that was not the plan. The shells were not to hit the rear areas yeah. on, the, on the reverse slope of Cemetery Ridge. They weren't to hit the reserve artillery or the hospitals or the... Or, or Meade's command post, for, yeah. uh, for instance, uh, they were they were to hit the ridge line yeah. and suppress the artillery on the ridge line, like Cushing's battery, which did take a little punishment, but not nearly enough. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was far more dangerous for federal soldiers to be behind the ridge. But still, uh, what we often forget is that there were. Uh, you know, several hundred shells that did find the mark and did explode on the ridge itself. That that wasn't nearly enough to do the job. Yeah. Now we all. I think the whole world knows what happened at the end there. With you know, with you know, only the Confederates breaching at the angle there, and of course, every Confederate who breached that wall was either killed, wounded, or captured. The great question in your mind: Why didn't Meade pursue Lee vigorously? You know, I mean. It, why didn't he counterattack? You know, you know, after the uh, repelling the assault, and why didn't he pursue Lee vigorously once the battle is over? Well, it's a great question, and it has been discussed by many historians over the years. And my uh, summary of of what they have argued is is very basic. I think it, it's that uh, Meade was prudent. He knew he had won a great defensive victory, and he had achieved what he was told to do, which was to defend the northern cities, Washington and Baltimore, and defeat Lee. And he did do that. Now, he was also told to get Lee out of Pennsylvania, but he knew that Lee was probably going to get himself out of Pennsylvania after this defeat. Yep. Further, further, George Meade also understood if he goes back across that field that had uh, just seen Pickett's charge fail, a similar fate could await his his men. And, and which men would he have sent? Uh, the Second Corps had suffered about 2,500 casualties in repulsing Pickett's charge. It was a bit beat up. Uh, so who would have done it? Probably the Union Sixth Corps, which was very fresh and almost entirely unused. Now, it would have taken a little time to get him up there. Uh, but I would say probably by 2 to 3 o'clock, probably 3 o'clock, he could have had the Sixth Corps going across. Uh, but he did not know that the Confederates were almost out of artillery ammo. And he did not know that the Confederates were as badly damaged with the repulsive pickets charge as they actually were. Uh, and uh, we know that Longstreet wanted this uh, contingency to occur. He was hoping. Uh, but they don't come. 
Uh, and uh, Meade was too prudent. He was not going to throw away a guaranteed victory with the possibility of uh, a slam dunk, stupendous victory. Uh, I think if the Sixth Corps had gone across or uh, one of the other Union Corps, uh, you know, maybe a couple of them, it could have destroyed Lee's army. But Meade was playing it safe, and I don't blame him a bit for that. We need to remember he was conscious by this point in the battle that the 1st and the 11th Corps were half destroyed, the 3rd Corps was almost completely destroyed, the 5th Corps was very shattered and and beat up from defending a little round top and and the wheat field and and, uh, 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 other points uh, in in the southern part of the field. 12th Corps had taken casualties defending Culp's Hill, uh, so really, he's got one reserve, the 6th Corps. Oh, Buford's cavalry, one-third of his cavalry is almost completely destroyed. So he only had two cavalry divisions and one infantry corps. And uh, he was thinking about what he has lost as much as he has what he has won. Now, that's a good commander. I don't buy the argument he was too cautious. And Lincoln ultimately thought better of it, too. Uh, he wrote the famous letter that he puts in the drawer censuring Meade for not going too uh, fast after Lee and and, and, and uh, letting him get away, and then he decides not to send it because I think Lincoln realized Meade had done the country a great service. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, Meade finds out about the letter later, and that really does not sit well with him, as you can imagine. <laughs> Basically, what you described, it kind of reminds me of like Wellington's army after Waterloo. Yes, they won, but they were utterly bled white and basically damaged and wrecked in the process. I mean, would you yes. see the same metaphor yes, you can apply that? that? That's a great parallel. Waterloo and Gettysburg are wonderful, wonderful parallels and foils. Different historical contexts, yes. And and I would argue that uh, Wellington's defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo, with the assistance of the Prussians, obviously, was noticeably more complete than uh, Meade's defeat of Lee. I mean, Napoleon's Grand Armée is essentially did well essentially destroyed at Waterloo, uh, and, you know, the old guard is decimated there in the final stand. So uh, there's there's far, far more damage inflicted on the defeated army at, at Waterloo. But Wellington playing it more safe, uh, knowing that, you know, that we don't need to push our luck any more than we already have. And this is the thing about prudent, victorious generals. They know when they've won enough and to say this is good enough for the objectives that I have been given. And Meade was able to do that, and I think deserves a great deal of credit. And interestingly, the War Department and the Lincoln administration obviously came to their senses and agreed, uh, even after Meade threatened to resign after he found out about this unsent letter. And he was retained as technical commander of the Army of the Potomac the whole way to the uh, to Appomattox. Yeah. Uh, though superseded by Grant, who came in to, to supervise things, which Meade rankled under. He did not like that. He thought it showed a distrust of his generalship. Uh, but uh, Grant wanted to make sure that uh, Meade was not going to have any chance of a defeat uh, with Lincoln's election coming up. It was just prudence uh, you know, I, on the part of Grant, I think, yeah. uh, that, that created that situation. Christian, the last question of the night. In your opinion, who was the unsung hero of the Union forces at Gettysburg, if you had to nominate someone? The 
unsung hero of the Union forces at Gettysburg? Well, I'm going to give you the funny answer, which will make everybody laugh, and then I'm going to give you the really serious answer. So the, the funny the funny answer, uh, <laughs> not unsung at the time, and certainly not in his own mind, Dan Sickles. Uh, <laughs> Dan Sickles definitely believed he was all that in a bag of chips, and he made sure everybody knew it. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, say what you want about this rogue, and he really was a rogue. He was a rascal, and the, the man... Uh, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it, it's it's unbelievable is the, the history. I mean, he has an affair with the Queen of Spain when Grant sends him over there to be our minister after the war <laughs> to get him out of the country because he's such a pain in the neck. Yeah. And then he makes things worse. Uh, you know, you can't make it up. But Sickles, in his own idiocy, with his, his dumb move out to the Emmitsburg Road Ridge on the second day, screws up. Lee's plan, which I think had a very good chance of success yeah. if Sickles hadn't made the move. So that's the funny answer, but it's rooted in a bit of, you know, actual truth. Yeah, yeah. And, and and Sickles did say after the war that he was the one that saved the Union Army at Gettysburg by his brilliant maneuver. That's what he thought. Yeah. Of course, that's been corrected. Yeah. Then, you know, in a very truthful manner, the, the, the real hero of the, arm, uh, of the Union Army at Gettysburg, in, in my opinion, and this is now coming out with some great recent scholarship I really do think it's George Meade. I think it's yeah. the Army commander himself who, in the end, really proved his mettle. I mean, he had three days to get ready for the fight of his life, for the most important day in his military career, and he pulled it off with a command team that was not really totally uh, gelled. Yeah. Uh, a guy like Sickles who didn't like him in there, and um, a chief of staff who was still loyal to Joe Hooker. Uh, this thing could have gone wrong in so many different ways. Did Meade get lucky? Yes. Did the Confederates make a plethora of mistakes, which gave Meade some opportunities? Absolutely. Uh, but Meade, I think, is the, the true unsung hero, but he's not as unsung as he was, Matt. And more and more, he's getting the recognition and the credit that he deserves for, for winning this, this great battle. Christian, I want to thank you. This is the history of an epic battle, and what you gave is a magnificent, epic explication of one of the greatest battles in, in American history, and I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. Well, Matt, I thank you again for the opportunity uh, a second time. It's been a real pleasure, and I hope the listeners have gained from it. Thank you very much, and you take care and get some rest, okay? <laughs> thank you, Matt. You thank too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for my next show where I'll be interviewing sports author Joe Neese. Thank you and good night.